Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Hello, Nina. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? <laughs> good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. It's wonderful to be uh, back on the briefing. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. I know, I know. It's only ever when uh, Andrew goes away and leaves us, as he's done again this yeah. time, on his wonderful, glorious overseas yeah, holiday. Somewhere in Asia at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think he landed uh, today, I'm pretty sure, when I spoke to him earlier. But uh, we say hello to him if he's listening at home. <laughs> and uh, everyone wishes him a nice time on his trip that we're all not also getting to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's get straight into it. Look, a, a little interesting one that just popped up Big just news. yesterday. Big news. Obviously, we've been following very closely the Secure Jobs Better Pay Act changes around the industrial relations aspects of it. And we did have the first application made for a single interest authorisation, which is your multi-employer bargaining over in WA by the IEU against several different Catholic mm-hmm. school system employers. Now, they had been negotiating under the previous versions of those provisions, but they've now made this fresh application from the union for this um, to cover, I think it's nine different uh, employer or Catholic employer organisations um, that employ teachers and general staff. So it's a watch, wait and see at the moment, but yeah. I think given the fact that they were under the previous version of it, I suspect that the Commission will be likely to approve it under this new one without much sort of argy-bargy either way. But it probably means we're going to start to see more of that. After someone's mm. ripped off the first Band-Aid, mm. we, I think we're going to start to see many other unions start to bring those types of claims. Yeah, that's right. Well, we were speaking yesterday about how there's a lot in the protected action bargaining order space, which has been where there's the most activity. So unions seem to be targeting them one by one at the moment to test out these new provisions. Mm. Mm. All right. So on to the first case. Oh, yeah. So this one was a bit crazy. So unfortunately involved an employee who had a domestic violence situation. She had quite a violent partner and at times her partner would have to look after her son. So the employer had previously approved several bouts of her taking family and domestic violence leave to look after her son. But with the most recent incident, her son no longer felt comfortable living or being watched after by her partner and she requested three weeks of unpaid family and domestic violence leave to take care of her son. The employer didn't respond. She called them up and said, hey, are you authorising this? And they said, no, you don't have a job here Mm. anymore. (laughs) But then, like, tried to ignore all of that and sent her a termination letter saying Mm. she'd been terminated for various types of misconduct, Mm. which she had engaged in the misconduct. She hadn't been very appropriate when communicating to customers and things like that. But although she'd been warned in the past, they hadn't addressed that in the termination conversation. No, I didn't raise with her at all. So as you can expect, the Railway Commission was completely scathing Mm. about their treatment of her and it was clearly the fact that she was actually terminated for taking a legitimate right. And she'd been there, I think, a little bit more than... Like 10 months. Yes. But yep. she won six months. Yeah. The yep. total amount or the cap really for unfair dismissals. Absolutely. Which just goes yeah. to show mm. that the Fair Work Commission will not allow you to terminate on unfair reasons, particularly when it is an employee under 
go in such horrific circumstances. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's it's a great reminder of harsh, harsh, yeah. unjust or unreasonable. You know, people often forget that harshness is uh, one of those sort of factors that can take into account these sort of more broader societal yeah. elements. And this is obviously a very vulnerable person and the Commission is taking a very harsh view of yeah. the conduct of the employer in that circumstance. Yeah, mm. amazing result. Yeah, mm. yeah. So remember, don't yeah, don't ignore these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look at an interesting one here um, in terms of interpretation of an enterprise agreement. Now, the rule obviously to get through the door to ever get a version of a word in an enterprise agreement is you need that ambiguity. But you've got to make sure to remember that when you're testing ambiguity, that you've got good evidence to support why your version is correct. And importantly, you remember that the language must be found in the context in which it's written. So great example here, of South Australian-based employer had an enterprise agreement that provided for the employees to receiving a pay rise in February this year to receive, I think it was either it was a 2.5% pay increase or CPI, whichever is greater. Now, of course, they didn't define what CPI meant no. in the enterprise agreement. It was assumed knowledge. It was, that's right, that's right. And so the employer applied the national CPI rate, which was 7.8%, and the AWU, the union, sought to have, in fact, the South Australian-specific CPI, which was 8.6%, applied. And the commission agreed with the union here. They looked at the language and, uh, that was in the agreement and the context of the agreement being that it was for South Australian employees negotiated in South Australia for a South Australian-based business and said, well, look, in the circumstances and the applying the rules they have to apply, the context shows that this is South Australian. So it can only be that the objectively correct interpretation of that ambiguity was it was the South Australian rate. So, look, a reminder that when you are putting terms into an agreement, don't assume yeah. that there is a shared assumption about it, or at least if there is one, evidence that shared assumption in some form of letter or other document. But the most simplest way is if there's anything that does require definition, define it in your enterprise agreement. Mm. Yeah, I think this happens all the time oh, see, yeah. in enterprise agreements where there's this idea of customer practice that you've mm. done it over and over and over again, which might be the case. But Avoid the fight. Just make it very clear. That's right. And then you don't mm. have to have this because the union will try to find some other way to interpret it. Yeah, that's right. Put in the work at the beginning so you don't yeah. have to do it at the end. Yeah. All right. On to the next one. Oh, yeah. So this one is a small update in the news. So from the 1st of July, the Victorian government have introduced the requirement to have licences if you're going to employ any employees under the age of 15. So this will impact any clients who have junior employees and they're going to have a fitness for fit for purpose test, I think, yep. a fit and proper person test, yep. which means that in order to get the licence, you have to disclose if you've ever breached workplace safety laws and also employment laws, so Fair Work Act, Workers' Compensation Act, OHS laws, and it actually might impact whether you're able to get a license. Mm, so mm. it's just another example to show that they're really trying to harmonise and uniform all of the laws across workers' compensation, employment and safety, and you can't kind of go through and just assume if you're complying with one, you can ignore the other because it's all going to impact. Yes, yeah, exactly right. So a big thing, big change. Yeah. Mm. All right. Onto another interesting case. <laughs> We've got a lot of cases mm, this week. Mm. This one was just 
absolutely crazy. So this involved a managing director who was furious with a project manager because he had racked up a lot of overtime costs because he hadn't managed the project very well, so the concrete pour had been significantly delayed. Instead of dealing with it in a reasonable manner, he basically lost it at this project manager and said, you know, you're done, return the company to you, you're mm-hmm. not coming back. Mm-hmm. So the project manager reasonably understood that to mean that he was fired yeah. and he messaged in the company group of WhatsApp chat, said, oh, I've been terminated. Because he put that message mm. and that's all he did, mm. the managing director went off mm. and wrote an email to other colleagues saying he was a company thief. No, company he, thief. Yeah, he, he messaged or he called him, threatening him, saying, you have to remove that WhatsApp mm. message, mm. otherwise I'm going to get you and your family. Yeah. Then yeah. wished oh. to talk to his wife and accused him of, you know, being on cocaine all the time and mm. asking for money at work. None of these things were true. It's crazy. So he's basically just harassing yeah. this yeah. guy mm. for that one message. Yeah. And yet the guy's like, I don't understand what is going on. He puts an email to HR saying, this is the sequence of events. Mm. I didn't resign. I got fired. HR ignores that and sends a letter saying, we are confirming you resigned from your mm. employment. Mm. But then mm. after all of that, Matt, then the managing director decides to, look, fine, he's gone. I'm not going to pay him out mm, anything. No. He gets no, none of his accrued leave, mm, no notice, no notice nothing. Yeah, nothing. Mm. And so the employee brings a claim for breaches of the Fair Work Act. He definitely could have taken them for the unfair termination mm, as well, mm. but decides to just pursue what he just wants you know, to tell what so, yeah, yeah. And so as you can imagine, the I think it was the federal court in Sven or the family yeah. circuit, was absolutely scathing about the abusive behaviour. Oh. It had caused the employee to suffer PTSD. Mm. I think they said in subsequent interviews he was crying mm. if he had to mention his previous mm. employees. It was mm. awful, awful stuff. Mm. And as a result, they got, I think it was 24000 or 25000 for non-economic loss. It's $57,000 in notice because he would have definitely worked for at least another four yep. months. yep. 42,000% as penalties, which is yep. 80% of the maximum, and mm. costs. Yeah. So it is just a reminder. Like, I know no none of you would ever do such no, atrocious oh goodness, No, thing. absolutely not. But yeah. it's a reminder that if someone does the wrong thing, so in the first it started with the employee doing the wrong thing, mm. don't seek a path of revenge. Mm. Like, don't withhold entitlements. Mm. Don't do things like that because although it seems like the principle is it's right because they've done the wrong thing, I'm withholding something it's not right under the law and they can prosecute you for it and you will get penalties for it so please don't do that yeah it might feel good in that moment but it doesn't when you're getting that order handed down from the court so a good reminder not to uh, act poorly (laughs) even if you get poor behavior towards you for sure well look an interesting one here just in respect of redundancy pay we get asked a lot of questions about the exception to paying redundancy pay which looks at the, where it's due to the ordinary and customary turnover of labour. And look, for a long time, that was really quite well understood by parties and by the courts and so on, that that test that applied to whether that exception applied was really one that looked subjectively at what the business practices of a particular business were. So if we had a, you know, a cleaning business and we had contracts with service clients and so on and we employed employees for those contracts, 
If it was the case that when those contracts ended, the service contracts with the third party, we simply terminated the employment, then this exception would apply. What we've seen in recent years is several full court decisions which have identified that this is actually an objective test, which is that instead the way you look at it is you look at if the reasonable person in the position of both the employer and employee would have understood that the employment to which the service contracts applied had some sort of predetermined end date so that it was not of an ongoing nature. And that's quite a shift because what it has meant and what is evidenced in this um, case in particular, here we had a business that actually had uh, 31 cleaning employees who were employed to perform cleaning services in aged care facility over a series of three different five-year length service contracts with the aged care facility. The aged care facility decided to insource employees and the employer determined that it wasn't going to have to pay redundancy pay because of this exception because it said that was the way we always did it yeah and the court the first instance the judge got it wrong got the law wrong but the full court looked at this and said well we have to apply these tests and actually when you look at these employment agreements well none of them include a particular end date none of them are linked specifically to this particular contract the employees, for all intents and purposes, understood that they were ongoing employees. And importantly, the nature of the work that was being performed wasn't such that it had some sort of specified end date. So in comparison to, say, a construction site or something like that, when you built the thing... Or a temporary everyone, project kind of thing. That's right. Well, everyone understands that yeah. it's come to an end. Here, the services that the aged care facility we're needed, they were going to be continuous. Yeah. So it couldn't be said. So it's just another great reminder. This is now three full federal court decisions in around about the last six to seven years that have really emphasised that what you need here, if you are a business that does engage people in accordance with contracts that you have with clients actually make that expressly clear, not only in the employment contracts of the employees, but in the way that you operate that business as well. So if it is a five-year contract, terminate all those employees when that contract ends and start a new contract if need be to make sure that you can actually lawfully rely on this exception. Probably would have been done through maximum term contracts. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. and notwithstanding all the changes that are coming later this year, that would be a a much better way to have done. Yeah. All right, and look, another interesting one, we do always like to talk about the anti-vax ones, um, (laughs) which still continue to come through. Here, another great example of how if you get it wrong in terms of how you actually practice around the vaccination issue itself, um, you can run into a lot of trouble. So here, classic anti-vax employee outright refuses to be vaccinated but receives a lot of conflicting information from the employer. Yeah, real mixed message. One time they're told they have to be vaccinated. Next, they're told they can get away with not being vaccinated. They're tested. They ask a whole bunch of questions. They get different answers. They're ignored. And they ask for policies. And oh, my goodness. Them. They're yeah. told that it's based on the government requirement. Then they're Which told it's true. based on the policy <laughs> requirement. Then they say, then we don't have a So it ends up all over the place. And, look, it's an important reminder because ultimately this employee actually does suffer quite significantly from that inconsistent behaviour. Ends up, uh, you know, on suicide watch, for example, because of their, you know, anxiety about this threat if they saw it of being vaccinated. And And terminated. 
because they weren't. That's vaccinated. right, exactly right. So not only that, that they thought they were going to be forced to be vaccinated, but then that their employment might be terminated. Um, it ultimately results in them suffering a, a recognisable psychological injury in the workplace that then results in a, you know, a reasonably lucrative outcome for the employee. They end up getting, I think it's uh, quite a considerable amount of money, but Really, the court was quite critical and said, look, notwithstanding that there was a lot of uncertainty about this period, and, you know, it ties into well into what we're about to talk about in terms of uncertainty, you still have to conduct yourself in a reasonable way. And they just really failed in that way and dropped the ball a little bit. Yeah, had they just done procedurally fair yeah. things, then the fact that it was they were introducing a policy would That's have right. all been fine. Process, process, process. Yeah. comes back to that. Had they done it properly? I think yeah. we wouldn't have had the issue that they ultimately did have. Yeah. All right, on to the main topic. Yes. We are running yeah, behind we are, the time. we are. Well, look, today we're talking about recessions and we're talking about what your business can do. And, look, always good to start with the definition of a recession. So it is the uh, two consecutive quarter periods of negative economic growth and a general downturn in the economy. And you might say, well, gee, Matt and Nina, it does feel like we're in that at the moment. Now, technically, Australia's not. Um, yeah. And uh, we want to make that very yeah, clear. Despite yeah. what the media says, That's right. we are not currently in a recession. Exactly. And look, all the other things that we do know and are all feeling, the cost of living impacts, increasing interest rates, all of those things are still valid and true. They aren't technically elements or aspects of a recession. But what this period provides, I think, is a really interesting point as employers and as businesses is there is a great opportunity here for a little bit of introspection about the way your business is progressing and the way it's proceeding in these circumstances where uncertainty is likely on the horizon. Yep. So we're not sitting here making any predictions about whether, <laughs> whether a recession might arise or otherwise. But the reality is, is that everyone can see that there are some economic shocks coming that might result in a recession happening. And you have the beauty of time. Knowing that it's likely going to happen, you've got the time now instead of like, when it was the GFC and no one knew it was going to happen, mm. you were sprung into it. You have the beauty of time now to reflect and organise for what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, we're preaching proactivity today. So, you know, obviously the pandemic, the recession that happened there, you had to be very reactive. The global financial crisis had to be very reactive. Paul Keating's recession we had to have had to be very reactive. Mm. We were you know, millennials. We've lived through three, maybe four soon. So we've, <laughs> we're really well versed in these um, as compared to previous generations. But it is a really great opportunity to sit back. And there's a, there's a couple of things that we did want to cover off and we'll probably cover off quite quickly. But one is looking at, yeah, what is sort of your business capability? You know, now that you know that there is some uncertainty coming and coming forth, what information do you have now to look at what are the capabilities in terms of your business? What can it do? What would be impacted if things were to change? Yeah. And what are the people aspects as like, well? Yeah, and like what areas are doing well and are likely to continue doing well? So it might not be doing well now, mm. like in terms of, um, like we use the pandemic, for example. We know that tourism and numbers were down. There was less labour. So some of our clients really struggled with supply issues and building products and manufacturing things. But knowing that more people were going to come through, that's just gone through the roof now. So it's about looking to the future and seeing what is your organisation going to look like then and how do we adapt that and make sure that, you know, we're restructuring and organising everything to account for those future goals. Yeah, exactly. And look, it uniquely positions businesses because 
there is some change management protocols that you can put in place now that are going to avoid a lot more hurt and pain across both your employee base and your business. So we're talking about, yeah, we're looking at what parts of our business can perform well and might perform well under pressure, what ones aren't performing well now that might be able to be restructured and adapted. But also we know that these big periods of uncertainty have a really significant impact on employees and that has flow through effects to productivity, health and safety Mm -hmm. and things like that as well. So what is the capability of your business around that change management now? What are you looking at? What processes have you got in place so that people will feel supported, people will feel that they've got resources in place so that when these more negative impacts do manifest, they're prepared at least in some way with the support of the business to address those issues. Yeah, and it all comes down to leadership because in periods of uncertainty, people will look to their leaders. And if it feels like you've got a plan, you know what's going to go on and you know how to steer the ship, they will follow you and listen to whatever you have to say. But if you're not prepared and you're kind of at that stage on, I don't actually know what's going on, they will feel that and it's going to make everything much worse. It doesn't matter what kind of discussion you have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's again, it, it comes back to the point that you are trying to nip that uncertainty mm. in the bud before it becomes an issue, the proactivity versus the reactivity. And, you know, it can often feel difficult when we are on the precipice of such a period to feel that that time and effort required to prepare some people for something that we are uncertain about that might even happen at all. But what we're really saying is that businesses that we can see that do make the time and investment in people in that change management now before things change are really going to be better off for once those things turn and all of a sudden the control is out of your own hands. Yeah, and it also just means if you're planning now and say down the track you do need to do redundancies, you will have all of this evidence that it's been a long time coming, that you really thought about it, so it is a genuine redundancy or when you get down that path and someone says, no, you've targeted me Mm. or you're choosing something, well, here's like, you know, a couple of months worth of, reports and discussions that we've had because we've seriously considered how to get the business to the point that we need to make it financially viable for the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So preparation is key. We don't want to panic everyone, absolutely not. But This is the opposite, actually. Actually, exactly right, exactly. We're trying to preach don't panic right here and just there. Have a think, sit back, take the time, invest the resources to assess your capabilities across all aspects of your business future proof it for those circumstances where a potential recession is on the horizon. Yeah. And make sure, just last thing, make sure you comply with all your consultation obligations mm. under safety and employment because, yeah. like Matt said, change management is a big thing and it's a huge psychological hazard and you don't want any workers' compensation claims arising out of that just because you could have done it in a more fair and reasonable process. Excellent. All right. right. Okay. So, to the case. Well, I'll read it today. Yeah. I think, yeah, we didn't talk about this before. There you go. <laughs> All right. Angel Electrics manufactures circuit boards for the home and commercial construction automation market. It has earned $100 million in revenue. AE is an Australian success story that emerged during COVID, reaping the benefits of international competitive supply chain issues. The slowing in the domestic and commercial construction industry, looming recession and return to the market of cheap competitors Lower risk as the exchange rate makes Australian production cheaper than Chinese and Vietnamese businesses, but recessions usually make the AUD stronger, so will be a bigger issue soon, in bracket, means AE now needs to look at cost saving. 
One of the ways of saving money is to automate production further, meaning a probable drop in headcount by 75 within six months as the lines commission and come online. The decommission goes much better. They will have to close the Cobra plant that does work exclusively for the Department of Defence. It will not renew the contract from 1 July 23, and the plant is otherwise too antiquated to upgrade for the other work it does, affecting a further 45 staff. AE hires a consultant to look at people reorganisation. The consultant recommends the retrenchment of 110 staff immediately. Cut deep, excuse me, not death by a thousand cuts, his language. <laughs> his language, Andrew's language. <laughs> the evidence does not support more than the Coburg closure on 1 July 23 and the loss of 45 heads as automation kicks in around September and the remainder upon commissioning or decommissioning on 30 December 2023. The board adopts the consultant's plan and instructs the executive to execute the plan. The consultant specifically suggests the union delegates in the Preston factory, all who have workers' comp claims in the past, be part of phase one of redundancies. His reasoning is that they would go in phase two, but why take a risk? AE commences its communications around the potential for future change. The union allege a final decision has been made and commences proceedings in the federal court. All right, so is the process of breach of safety law, and if so, how? If so, could WorkSafe get the report and board resolution and executive emails and work done towards restructuring, and what would it have to do with it? Prosecute, what is the likely result, Nina? That's a long question. Oh, it's more than one question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely is a breach of safety law, so consultation obligations. You have to consult if there's any going to be any change that affects the health and safety of someone, and this change management is a psychological hazard, the mm. fact that, They've already pre-made the decision mm. and there's no reasonable basis for picking the union delegates. Yes. That in itself is also discrimination under safety legislation as yep. well. So definitely several breaches. They could get all of that information if it's not protected under legal professional privilege through just like the Section 100 report, request, sorry. And based on that, it would basically write the prosecution for them and mm. they would most definitely succeed against AE, yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy little paper trail that they've created for nefarious yeah. purposes, isn't it? Um, especially where there's that evidence it's alluded to that actually shows that commercial reasoning supports a smaller yeah. redundancy. but to, to pick the union delegates for the... That's right, that's right. Which, look, it flows in well as the answer to question two is the process of breach of industrial law and if so, how and what could happen. I mean, what we know from this is that the consultants effectively... Uh, discriminated against those union delegates. So that's discrimination both at the state level under the Equal Opportunity Act. It's discrimination in terms of Section 351 of the Fair Work Act. Um, but importantly as well, it's actually effectively adverse action on the basis of industrial activities as well because they're organisers, they're organising union activity in the business mm -hmm. and they've been targeted for that specifically. So we've got those aspects for those union delegates, but then we also have breach of the award consultation mm -hmm. provisions as well here. So, yes, there's been made a definite decision as to restructure the business, but it's then taken it that next yeah. step further. They've already taken that conclusion about what the consequences of that will be without consulting the employees about those significant yeah. effects. Although it says that they've started the communications, it's clear that that's perfunctory at best. Yes. They've pre-made the decision, so whatever they say, it's not going to make a difference, and that will be shown once they get all the documents. Exactly, exactly. So a really big issue there.
Uh, Christian, the union gets discovery and finds the adoption of the consultant report and obtains the report. Can the discovery be used by the individual union officials to commence proceedings or is it limited to the union? Yeah, so this is to do with this thing called the Harmon undertaking, which is this principle that says when you are getting any kind of documents in proceeding, it has to be used for the purpose for which you are seeking the documentation yeah. and it can't be used for ulterior motives. That's right. So yeah. the union could definitely seek and get all these documents through discovery. But the individual union, I don't think they were delegates. I think, oh, they were. They weren't officials. Yeah, the union brought the proceeding yeah. the individuals were the delegates. Yeah, so yeah. the delegates yeah. couldn't use that material to bring their own claims, but that's not to stop the union from bringing it on behalf of That's right, that's right. Delegates. Or using the information that they know the report exists mm. to bring their own proceedings to then seek it in their own proceedings through yeah. discovery. So, so it's yeah. basically that AE is <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so union officials at Preston Lodge workers' compensation claims saying psychological hazards of dealing with dishonest employer uncertainty around restructure and doctor safe have adjustment disorders. Will their claims be successful? What does that mean about their obligation period and making them redundant? What would be the premium impact? So definitely going to succeed on workers' compensation. Mm. So many psychological hazards. Mm. It hasn't been a fair and reasonable process, so no defence under reasonable management action. I think there is a limit to when you can terminate them as well because they will have filed a... Yeah, they filed the claims claim. it's 52 yeah. weeks from the time. Yeah, so claims, that, yeah. that means that they'll be on the books and that means a likely premium impact of a million dollars. Yeah, well, that's pretty significant, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, so just really follow process. That's right. I think that should right. be the yeah, key follow process is the today. key message of today, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, then will AE have to pay severance payments at COVID that was closed because the contract was not reviewed, renewed? Well, look, this goes to the, the customary and ordinary turnover of labour. Uh, what we know is, is that the factory does other work, so it doesn't just exclusively do the work of the defence Contract, and we also have no information at all about uh, what was the arrangements for these particular employees. Were they aware that their employment was tied to this contract, etc.? So we can assume that the exception wouldn't apply, and yeah, the redundancy pay would be payable. So we're looking at a really significant and hefty redundancy bill. All right, excellent. So thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. And, It'll um, be the dream team for the next three yeah. weeks. If you can believe that. There you go. Yeah, Sorry, Andrew. Yeah. Mm. All right. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.